Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Kindled Podcast. I'm your host, Haley Williams, and this is the show where we talk about work, motherhood, and the grace we need for both. We are making and being made. Come join us. Well, hello. Welcome back to Kindled. This is episode 85, and I'm your host, Haley Williams. Today, I'm going to be chatting with Neil Shenvey. Neil is a pretty interesting guy. He's actually a former theoretical chemist turned homeschooling dad turned critical theory expert. So you can see why I had to chat with him about the topic of critical theory. This is a pretty intellectually heavy episode. So just a little bit of a heads up. If you need to grab some coffee or a latte, I promise you it's worth it. It's very interesting and it's really engaging. I don't think it's above anybody's head. But uh, this is one of those episodes that you could take notes on. And my guess is that as we get into it, you're actually going to realize that you probably already have some idea of what this is. You just didn't know what it was called. All right. Here's my conversation with Neil Shenby. Neil, welcome to Kindled. Hi, Haley. Good to be here. So I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today about critical theory, a term that is still on the newer side for me of just understanding and and realizing what exactly that is. And so we're going to get into that topic today, I I think in depth and really give listeners an understanding of what that is and why they should care. But before we do, I would love for you to introduce us to yourself and your family. Sure. So I actually have a PhD in theoretical chemistry that has nothing to do with critical theory at all. Mm-hmm. But I worked as a scientist for years until about five years ago when I quit my job to homeschool our four kids. So my wife's a doctor. And for just various reasons, we thought it would be really cool to homeschool our kids. So I'm doing that now. And I was also really passionate about apologetics. And so I spent a lot of time reading and writing about apologetics. And I got into this area of critical theory really just providentially because I saw a drift among people that I knew in my church, people that I knew personally, public figures, who seemed to be just shifting their theological views in a progressive direction. I couldn't figure out why. And through those experiences, I began reading it more and more. And finally, I stumbled across critical theory. That's the subject we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. And it's you hear at terms like intersectionality, lived experience, white privilege, white fragility, colorblind racism, all of those phrases are coming out of a discipline called critical theory. And I think if you don't hear that term, you at least recognize some of those other terms I mentioned. Yes. Yep. I bet listeners have probably heard one of them. Maybe not all of them, but I, I, I'm guessing most of us have now kind of come into contact with with some of those terms you mentioned in in some context or other. And I was telling you right before I started recording why this conversation, why this topic, you know, my podcast is for women who, and we talk about issues surrounding work, motherhood, and the grace we need for both. And while this may seem like a little bit of a stretch, 
I actually firmly believe it's not a stretch at all. I think it's really valuable and timely for women, especially those who are believers, who are raising children at home, who are dealing with all of the kind of, you know, the melting pot of worldviews that their kids may be taking home from school to understand what is out there in culture and what's being taught, what's being promoted, preached, and even like you said, seeping into some of our evangelical churches. And so my first introduction to critical theory was probably, I would imagine similar to a lot of people's, I didn't actually know I was hearing anything of it. I, I had no, there wasn't a label, like there wasn't a label for what I experienced. I was at the Sparrow Conference in March and, you know, 90% of the content that I heard was really biblically sound and gospel centered. And I felt encouraged on some of the topics of racial, you know, reconciliation that were being addressed. I felt like it was being approached from a biblical worldview. But then there was that one very infamous um, panel discussion with Akemini Yuan, which really, unfortunately, just kind of put a damper on the whole experience. But that's the first place I heard things like whiteness is wicked, white fragility, gaslighting, internalized oppression, you know, all kinds of things that I had never really come into contact with. And so I felt in my gut, I just knew there's something really off about what this woman was saying this can't be from a biblical worldview. This is something else. This is Bible plus. And she, you know, Mm -hmm. was self-proclaimed Christian and was talking about how, you know, we as white women could do better. You know, all of you white women who elected Trump, Trump, you have an opportunity to fix what you have broken and all of these things. And I just was like, there's so much more here than is simply like the unity that we would seek and, and hope to have as believers united under the Bible, you know, and under Christ. And so, that began my, I guess, search, personal kind of search for what is this? What is this worldview that this woman is really espousing? And where is it coming from? What is it based in? And what is all, what are all of these terms? Like I was literally Googling whiteness <laughs> definition because I was told whiteness was wicked. And so I was yeah. like, does she mean my skin color is wicked? Or does she mean there's something about being white that inherently is wicked. And so, you know, I started digging into it and that is, you know, where I started to find out a little bit more. And that's where I first heard your name on another podcast, the Sheologians podcast, who interviewed you a few months ago about this same topic. So that's kind of the background. And so, you know, I'm an average mom. I'm a stay-at-home mom of two, almost three kids. Why do I need to know what critical theory is and why should I care? And I mean, Let's just ask it that way, because I, I do want to know and do care, but I bet the listener is probably wondering, is this really relevant to me? And is this is this just for people who are like in this intellectual space of, you know, discourse or does this matter to me? Yeah, good question. I would say it absolutely matters because one of our commands as parents is to train our children up in the you know, fear and admonition of the Lord. And that means helping to shape their worldview, their mind, how they think about issues, especially important issues that are prevalent in our culture. And it helps to understand that critical theory is an ideology. It's, an, it's a set of ideas that really functions as a worldview. A, a bunch of, of atheists, a secular people who are and liberals, actually, not, not conservative atheists, but, but they've begun to call critical theory or social justice theory, they call it. The terms are kind of up in the air a little bit. 
-hmm. but they refer to it as a religion. And Mm -hmm. they, these are atheists, they're worried that critical theory is going to infiltrate Christianity and and, and, uh, and evangelicalism. Not not because they think evangelicalism is true, because they at least recognize that what's replacing it might be even worse. (laughs) Mm. So for that reason, if we, and I think they're right, is there something deeply religious underneath critical theory it's functioning at a religious level that's why it's so effective in capturing people's imaginations because it gives you a source of righteousness a source of hope a purpose in life a meaning an identity gives you all those things but it, it does so in a way that is antithetical to the gospel and we have to equip our kids to recognize it so that they can know spot the counterfeit and say no this is actually not compatible with christianity uh, because, like I said, it it's, it works so well because it, uh, it in many ways co-ops the language and even the felt needs that Christianity addresses. Things I mean, needs like a need for redemption, uh, a recognition of sin, a recognition of things things wrong with the world. How can we fix it? It affirms all those things, but it, it points to different ideas than Christianity points to. Yeah, that you said that so clearly that it does it does present all those same things that Christianity does, the the source of righteousness, purpose, hope, the felt needs. And that's why I think it and we'll get into this and you're the expert here, but that's why I think it's so easily kind of leaching into churches and and going completely unrecognized. And I mean it's it's like a chameleon because it kind of blends in with a message that sounds right or almost like what we're used to hearing, but just a little bit like a, a quarter turn, you know, it sounds very, it's very much a, uh, focused on compassion, justice, yeah. right? People sound like they really want to care for the marginalized. And again, what Christian doesn't want to care for the marginalized and want to right. help people that are hurting, doesn't want to sympathize and do what's right and, and enact justice. We, we want all those things. But you have to understand, like your experience with whiteness, a lot of these terms have been redefined so they can speak in a language that sounds familiar. But if you go underneath and ask, well, what are you really saying? You begin to see that there are a lot of discrepancies between how they understand, say, justice and how a Christian understands justice. Yes. So can you kind of give us a working man's definition of critical theory and then kind of walk us through the tenets? Sure. So this is the hard part. So critical theory is a very broad discipline. It's like talking about feminism, right? If I okay. said, what is feminism? Oh my goodness. Talk to, you know, talk to Summer. She, she'll tell you, you know, well, what wave? The first wave, second wave, third wave? We're talking right. about third world. So there's a lot there or postmodernism or even t- think about something like Christianity or, 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 or Islam or these religions. Well, well which domination, which tradition? So that can be a very, it's a very broad discipline. And if you look at a book like, uh, well, I'll get into these, but Bradley Levinson's Beyond Critique is a great book on critical theory. But he talks about how there are actually many critical theories. There's not just one critical theory. There mm-hmm. are many thinkers and writers who subscribe to various forms of critical theory, which all can be called critical theory. What I want to focus on is what I would call contemporary critical theory or maybe postmodern critical theory. Thing, uh, so I'll, but I'll list some ideas, and I can name some thinkers that, whose names you might recognize too, who would subscribe to these ideas. And again, so this would be one stream of critical theory, but it's the one that's most recognizable and popular today. So here, the, here I'll just run down sort of four brief ideas, and then see if you can recognize these ideas. Okay. So number one, 
society is divided into dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups along lines of race, class, gender, sexuality, gender identity, physical ability, and other, a host of other factors. So you can separate groups into either oppressed, dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups along all these different axes. So that's number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, oppression is not just violence. Oppression isn't just you know putting chains on people and hurting them and being cruel to them. Oppression also includes when a dominant group imposes their values on a subordinate group. So it's not just that, oh, I, I stole something from someone or a whole group of people stole from a marginalized group. It could be that I'm imposing my patriarchal values on women. So as a man, the patriarchy has said that women are, say, weak and women are unintelligent, women are emotional. Those are all values that patriarchy has imposed on women and is oppressing them in that way. That's number two. Number three, that our job is to expose and dismantle those values and structures that create oppression. So we should not just, we don't just look for like, well, are you being enslaved? You're being oppressed. No, you could say you're enslaved mentally because you, as a woman, you believe these lies that have been told to you by the patriarchy. And so as critical theorists, we expose those ideas as false. And then we dismantle the structures that produce those false values. Like we, we go after the, the advertising industry. We go after the entertainment industry for promoting those false values. We dismantle those systems and therefore liberate the oppressed. Mm-hmm. So then number four, your social location, whether you're an oppressor or an oppressed person, determines how, how much access you have to the truth. So the more oppressed you are, the more you are a part of multiple subordinate groups the more insight you have into these false ideas. So as a man, I'm kind of blind to the patriarchy because I, you know, I benefit from it. But women have that, what's called a double consciousness. They, they realize, oh, wait, that's a lie. So they have a better access to reality than I do because of my male privilege. And same goes for uh, you know, pers- people of color over whites or the LGBTQ individuals over heterosexuals. They all have, so uh, say a, a Hispanic female lesbian would have uh, you know, triply uh, access to the truth over, say, a straight white male. Mm-hmm. I'm half Indian, but you know, if I were if I were white, sure. so okay. those are the four sort of core ideas of this ideology, and they're promoted by thinkers like Robin DiAngelo, Eduardo Benia Silva, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. She actually coined the phrase intersectionality. That's a common phrase. Peggy McIntosh, who popularized the phrase white privilege. Those are all modern thinkers who would f- fall into those those four ideas. So that's, that give you an idea of, does it sound familiar? Yeah. A little yeah. bit, yeah. Yes. I've, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I think I heard the term white privilege years ago, years and years ago. I mean, that's been in my consciousness as far as the idea of that, you know, being a reality. And I don't think that we always know what to do with terms like that when there's a, when there's kind of a new term that's been invented and, and, and may not even like the two concepts together may not be entirely untrue. Like there's, you know, some truth to that. Like, yeah, I can see, okay, well, actually you could be right. I did grow up in the suburbs and I did have parents who were married, you know, all these things. And so it's like, ah, wait, I don't know. Is this true? Is this, is this a lie? I don't know how to dissect that. So the trick, so the key thing here, I think on the one hand, we have to be charitable and actually, actually it helps the more you really understand and can appreciate the elements of truth that are in these ideas, then the better you can critique them. I think the problem is if you just throw them all out as garbage, 
well, you don't really appreciate why they're attractive, right? If you mm-hmm. don't understand how the, the poison is being hidden inside of the nutritious food, well, you can't effectively warn people. So just saying, well, that's all just postmodern progressive garbage. Well, people will say, wait a minute. Actually, it kind of sounds like, actually, I did grow up in a very sheltered environment. Yeah. I, I do, accept, for example, take an example. The idea that dominant groups, uh, you know, impose their ideas on culture and it makes injustice seem, you know, normal. It's called hegemonic power. So the idea that, mm-hmm. you know, men have the patriarchy that imposes these ideas on women. Well, think about that for a second. What do conservatives always talk about in terms of the uh, entertainment at the Hollywood, right? Mm-hmm. Don't we don't we have a hard time teaching our children that a woman's worth is more than just her physical attractiveness? Mm-hmm. No. Yes, we do. Now, why? Because you turn on the TV or the movies or, or the magazines and you're fed a constant stream of ideas mm-hmm. that a woman's worth is determined by her, her physical attractiveness. That's hegemonic power. That is a way in which Hollywood and Addison Avenue and other institutions have created a situation in which we accept these ideas without even thinking about them. So right. that's actually, uh, that's a good, a good point. Uh, think about the way in which, I mean, there are examples of, um, take, take white privilege, okay? There's, there are bad ways in which that idea can be used, but I think if you just say, well, all I mean is that white people often don't understand, they don't experience racism in the way that many black people do, I'd say, well, well yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, sure. I, I, a white person who doesn't have to worry if they get pulled over by a cop, is this, is this, could this be because of my race? Could it be? I'm not saying it is, right. my, but as a white, you don't have to worry about that. I'm, I'm sure yeah. it's not my race. It might be because I was speeding, but it's not my race. Or as a black person, based on the data, it seems more likely they might have been profiled. Now, again, mm-hmm. maybe, they didn't, maybe they weren't, but, but there is at least some data to suggest that they're pulled over at higher rates. Uh, there, are other, there are other, and this is, this is data, I'm relying on actual experimental studies showing that some of these phenomena could be real. And then mm-hmm. it's fine for Christians to say, you know what, I, I only have one perspective. I live my own life. And maybe my understanding of these ideas is limited by where I grew up, you know, who I am, my gender, my race. What sure. It's only when you then apply the other ideas of critical theory that it becomes a much more problematic framework. So let me give you one example. We talked about how in critical theory oppression is defined uh, or happens when dominant groups impose their values on subordinate groups. We talked about how, okay, for, for say men imposing their ideas on women is the patriarchy, but critical theorists would say that not only are women oppressed, but other subordinate groups include people of color, the poor, but also the LGBTQ community, non-Christians or, or, or a subordinate group who are being oppressed by Christians. So all of these, so all thing, all these institutions like racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, those are all oppressions and they all have to be dismantled. Mm-hmm. They, they seem all the same level. So imposing your belief, say that blacks are inferior to whites is evil. It's racism. And we'd say, amen, it is. It's totally evil. Yeah. But then imposing your view that say homosexuality is a sin, that would also be oppression. That's also evil from a critical theory perspective. Mm-hmm. But a Christian would say, no, wait, 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 that's, that's different because blackness, whiteness, Hispanicness, Asianness, these are not moral issues, right? God created all of us, we're all made in God's image. But sin is different. Sin is not a, a non-moral issue. Sin is a moral issue. Well, 
again, from the perspective of critical theory, that's no, there's no difference. Those are all treated on the same footing. Those are all examples of dominant groups imposing their values, their morality on the culture. And all of those isms have to be dismantled. Is it because, you know, and this is a genuine question, is it because they would argue that, you know, the LGBTQ community would argue, well, this is not a choice I am making. This is how I was made just as much as I am a white person or I am a black person. uh, God made me gay. God made me trans. Like, is it because of that or is it because of the the fact that they would be considered a minority and therefore an an oppressed group. Right. Yeah. So it's actually the language they would use is not minority, but minoritized. For example, there are more women than men in the U S like, so women are actually majority, but they are minoritized because they're a subordinate social group. So, so for example, other example I use is white men make up something like 37% of the U S. So most people are not white men. In fact, rich white men or rich old white men, it's like something like 10% of the population. So they're a minority, old rich white men are a minority, but they're like the canonical oppressor. Mm-hmm. So actually D'Angelo says this in her book, uh, Is Everyone Really Equal? She says it's not about numbers. It's not. Right. You can be okay. a dominant group and be a small fraction population, but because you have the power, if you're imposing your values on culture, then you're a dominant oppressor. group. Right. So they would say it's not about whether they're born a certain way. It's not about that. It's about um, whether or not they are a an a subordinate undervalued group that's not setting the values for the culture. You know, they mm-hmm. would say that heterosexism is everywhere. We're, we're a, I think the term they use is compulsory heterosexism, compulsory heterosexuality. I think it's just, just Butler, where our society, at least in, maybe until about 10 or 20 years ago, just assumed everyone is heterosexual. We have, we had traditional marriage. We had norms. You see magazine ads with a yeah. man and a, a husband and wife that they would view that as oppression. Because yeah. they're saying that our heterosexual values are subtly and insidiously being imposed upon all people who are not all heterosexual. So that's oppression to a critical theorist. Mm. So I don't know if this is shifting gears too much, but why now? Why is critical theory, I mean, a lot of the people that it seems kind of started this conversation actually, I mean, started authoring books around these topics back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Why is it, why does it feel like it's just now gaining so much traction and it's being talked about and it's all just sort of seeming to kind of just have this snowball effect? Yeah, I, I can't answer that question. It's a good one. It's a very good one. I, I would say that at least in the evangelical community, I'm not sure about the culture, but I, I well, maybe that's too, that too. I would say that Donald Trump's election had something to do with it. I think that there was a huge backlash against mm-hmm. Trump. He's really a polarizing figure. Yeah. And, beca- and, and because of that, I think people gravitated towards anything that promised to uh, stand up against racism and sexism. And they wanted to find you know, some theory or some cause that would pose these injustices. And I think, you know, I mean, again, I, as a Christian, I completely reject racism and sexism. I'm happy to denounce it and say, if you are racist, if you think that blacks are inferior to whites, if you think that's wrong, you, you yeah. have terrible theology, you should repent. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually, it's funny that I actually get emails. I wrote a, an article in the Gospel Coalition about critical theory and how, how it was incompatible with Christianity. So I wrote Yeah, it, I read that. Know, yeah. So I read that article. And uh, my friend, Pat Sawyer, who, who he actually has a PhD in, in a cultural studies. So he does a lot of critical theory professionally, but he's a Christian. 
but he and I have been getting hate mail from white supremacists ever since. Hmm. I mean, legitimate white supremacists writing to us and it was horrifying. I mean, we're not talking about, oh, this is something kind of a little bit microaggressive. They're mm-hmm. calling, they're, they're just using horrifying, wicked language. And I just, you have to understand that there is, there are true neo-Nazis out there. Yeah. And I think they're actually growing in number. I'm not, a, I don't have to say, I don't deny that. I can say, yeah, I think they're actually growing, they're recruiting, mm-hmm. but I think that can be true. And we can, so we can say with unequivocally that Christianity is opposed to racism. It is anti-gospel. It is opposed to sexism. Where, you know, all human beings are made in God's image. We can say that. And we can also say, and yet critical theory is not the way. Yeah. Critical theory will not solve these problems. And in fact, it invites in a whole host of other problems into it. Just, it it's a competing worldview. Yeah. So I, we're trying to, we're just trying to pull Christians away from either of these dangers, which are both, we would say, anti-gospel mm-hmm. and urge them to, to, to seek scripture in yeah. terms of how to deal with racism and sexism and, and, and injustice, not, not to seek these other philosophies that in the end, I think are, are not just could have, but are having an incredibly harmful effect on Christians, on their theology. Yeah, it's almost like we've got an open wound and what we need is to apply pressure. And so it appears that what we should do is take this gauze packet and apply it to the open wound. And yet it's almost like this gauze packet is actually a mirage and it's a knife. (laughs) And then we're going to stab the wound with the knife instead of the gauze. So as you just said, it is, it is anti-biblical. It is in opposition to the Bible, but can you help us understand how exactly it is? How, how, what, what specifically about it is anti-biblical? Sure. So let's take a, so there's so many ways to narrow it down. So first of all, and again, a lot of these ideas, I talked about four sort of basic ideas of contemporary critical theory. I'm not talking about, you know, 100 years ago, 50 years ago. These are sort of modern authors. A lot of them have a core, an element of truth. But when they're taken as absolute statements, they become these almost worldview commitments. And that's where they really conflict with the Bible. So, for example, if you believe that people can be divided into dominant oppressor groups and subordinate oppressed groups, you know, along these uh, race, class, gender, sexuality, well, what I would say is the Bible and the dictionary view oppression in, mainly in terms of violence and cruelty, right? Mm-hmm. Not in terms of having values imposed on you. And that's important because not all imposed values are in unjust. They're not always oppressive. Right. For example, your parents impose their values on you when you're a child. Yeah. But if those values are, are scriptural, they're good values. They're, they're the right. In fact, if we were to impose... We, we want to impose God's values on society when it comes to things mm-hmm. like murder, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of present to say murder is, is wrong. I'm not oppressing you to make you, aff- to teach you that and to teach society that murder is wrong. So that's a, just a wrong way to think about what oppression is, right? or, or at least that, that idea that imposing values equals oppression. That's not true. The idea mm-hmm. that we can be divided into oppressors and oppressed groups based on just on not on our, our actual actions, but on our demographic groups. So, for example, as a man, I am an oppressor, even if I am incredibly kind and gracious and loving towards all the women in my life. Mm-hmm. That's not the Bible doesn't look at oppression that way. Like so, primarily, especially for Christians, we are viewed primarily through Christ. Right. We are Christians first. And. 
in the church, we meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ uh, of all races, of all classes, of all genders. But critical theory would say, no, actually, you have oppressor Christians and oppressed Christians. Right. And I would say, no, you don't. In fact, you can't have a church that way. That's Paul's whole point in, in Galatians 3, 26 and 28. He's talking to Gentiles, including Romans, who were literally mm-hmm. oppressing Jews. Yeah. And then the Jews who were oppressing is saying, in Christ, there is no Jew or Greek slave or free. He's saying that when you come together as a church, there's not these categories where you have certain standings in the church based on, again, your, your ethnicity, your gender, your, your class. These are all at least the level of your standing before God and your spiritual identity, these are all the same now that you're in the church. Now, they don't disappear. You're still a Jew, right? You can still have a culture. But to view other Christians who have never hurt you, who love you as an oppressor, that's that's incredibly unhealthy, to say the least. Yeah, because of an external quality that they had no... No control over. Yeah. That's one thing. Uh, Another thing. So... um, the idea, obviously, the idea that racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, transphobia, these are all the same. They're all oppressions. Well, that's not true. Because I would say that, you know, racism, classism, sexism, viewing people, and actually, I would say that if you view homosexuals or transgender people as less than human, that is a sin. <laughs> that, that's a, so yeah. if you define homophobia as thinking that homosexuals are less than human or are not made in the Imago Dei, well, that is a sin. Mm-hmm. Not thinking that way. However, I would say, well, I hope no Christian would think that anyone is, who's human is not made in God's image. We all are made in God's image. What I would say is that hope, when, when critical theorists oppose homophobia, what they're saying is homosexuality, transgenderism, all these other, these other sexualities are equally valid, are equally good. And I would say, no, as Christians, we should say that the Bible actually says those things are sin, and we mm-hmm. can't affirm those things as good. Now, right. again, are we all sinners? Yes, of course we're all sinners. Yeah. And it's like, you're, you're not saying because you are homosexual, you are less than the Imago Dei. Of course not. Yeah. But you are actually desecrating and sullying the very image of God that you already contain. Like, yeah, and that's that, yeah. why we would say we have a problem with it was, is because you are that that is you know it, not because we're devaluing you but because we we are valuing you more than you are valuing you right i would say that all sin all sin scars the imago dei that, that's that sin is rebellion against god and god created us and so by when we sin in any way we yeah. are devaluing ourselves and yet in god's eyes all of us are still made in his image and therefore worthy of dignity and respect and love mm-hmm. but, I, but i'm just saying that you cannot you know, critical theorists want to eradicate racism, classism, sexism, homophobia, ableism, transphobia, meaning that all of these behaviors, all of these, they're all, all acceptable. And I think Christianity, we can't, we can't marry that to biblical ethics. I just think we can't. And actually, they would, they would go even further. There are essays written by critical theorists talking about how ageism and adultism are oppressions. And adultism means that we value adults more highly than children. We treat children as care you know we didn't they're, they're dependent they need to be nurtured and and they need to be we don't give them agency and they think that's oppression that parents mm-hmm. are oppressing their children because again they're seeing everything through this lens of hegemonic power if you impose your values on someone you're oppressing them wow. i think we just take it back to the, the the bible is just one long hegemonic discourse it's one long yep. story about how god has all the power and he's imposing all of his values on us mm-hmm. but the christian worldview says that's a good thing. 
God imposing his values on us is our liberation because his values are good. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, it's like a fish having, if you impose, if you tell a fish, you must stay in the water, right? Is, is your owner oppressing you as a fish? If your owner tells you, hey, fish, stay in the water, you'll die. Right. The owner's not oppressing me. He's freeing me. He's giving me the way that my life is meant to be lived in, in the, the environment in which I am most myself. Yeah. So God's values, God's rules are liberation for us. And of course, now we, as sinners, we've broken God's law and that's where we need a savior. But the, but the, the very idea that values equal oppression is, is just not compatible with Christianity. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then, I guess, and then finally, I'd say, I could go on and on, but the final problem is this idea that social location determines your access to truth. It's the idea that, you know, as a man, I can't know certain truths that a woman has access to because she's a subordinate group or a, a person of color has access to certain truths that I don't have as a oh, half Indian, say, mm-hmm. or as a, a, an LGBTQ person has access to truths that I can't access because I am straight. So that idea, which is called um, uh, standpoint theory or, or standpoint epistemology, has some elements of truth, right? So we would agree that, okay, if I've only lived, say, in the suburbs, Mm-hmm. I might not have access to truths that you might learn immediately if you grew up in uh, the countryside or in a, or, or an urban environment or, or I don't, on, the, on the East Coast or in, or, or in Alaska. I don't know. So there is some element of truth that, sure, uh, we are our social location, where we are in terms of our class, race, gender, that can influence how we perceive certain truths. Sure. But it's not absolute. Mm-hmm. And the problem here is that uh, people like Robin D'Angelo will argue that essentially certain claims can be made and that if you're an oppressor to disagree with them is merely to admit your blindness. So in her book, white fragility, for example, she basically says that, you know, all whites because they're socialized into whiteness, which is this sort of racial oppressive system. It's not, it's not having white skin. It's, it's being part of this oppressive racial system. Mm-hmm. That because you've been socialized into whiteness, you have a deeply racist worldview and you are, you wrestle with white supremacy. You just, you just are that way. You've been socialized in a deeply racist society. So, and now if you, and you say, if you say to her, well, I disagree. Well, she characterizes that as a white fragility. So mm-hmm. you won't admit that you are racist. Therefore you're fragile now. So that would become right. what's called a Kafka trap. You, you mm-hmm. can't get out of it. You either admit you're racist or you, by denying you're racist, you show that you're racist by being fragile. Oh gosh, this happened to me. <laughs> this yeah. happened to me in the comments on, on one of the Sparrow posts. And yeah. I expressed some support for, for removing the content that was the inflammatory interview from their website and just said, you know, they're a private organization. They can do what they want. You know, what, like kind of what of it? And that's, oh my goodness, like, I wish I hadn't deleted my comment because with it, I deleted, um, I, I, I was uh, responding to comments for three days Yeah, yeah. and, and it would so have there, been longer. And the thing is, like, is there an element of truth there? Yes, there is. Like we right. can be fragile, but guess what? Uh, you know, whites can be fragile. Asians can be fragile. Indians, men can be fragile. Women can, <laughs> everyone can be fragile. We, you know, I, cause we have right. human fragility. Yes. We all get defensive. We all get you know, touchy. We all have blind spots. Sure. We all get fragile. The problem here is not fragility. It's the white fragility. It's that it's totally unidirectional here. It's that, yeah. you know, people can say, make statements and that basically they're irrefutable. Now, 
And how is that relevant? Well, here's the problem. I, I, I'm seeing movements across social media and people arguing uh, in Christian circles that things like, well, we need to decenter white theology or decenter European theology. We need to decolonialize our theology. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, no just to find what, what, what well, I'll tell you what I mean in a second. But well, actually, when you press people, what do you mean? Do you just mean we should read more authors who are not European? Because here's the problem: if you read, I'm a Protestant. I'm an evangelical. In fact, you know, I'm a Reformed evangelical. So I, I have certain doctrines that I believe are taught by Scripture that are encapsulated, you know, more or less by the creeds of the Reformation, like the five solas, right? I think that's just in the Bible. So if you're saying we have to decenter European theology, well, the Reformation was a European movement. It really was. Like all mm-hmm. those creeds are European yeah. creeds written by old white men. Right. So when you say we need to read less by old white men, well, shouldn't we just read more that's biblical, regardless of whether it's white men? And now, now I, I totally agree. If you want to say, well, I think these old white men got the Bible wrong, that's fine. I'm totally fine with saying um, their claims, Luther's claims, Wingley's claims, Calvin's claims, they were unbiblical. And I think these other authors are have a better handle on the Bible. That's fine. You know, semper reformanda. Let's let's examine the scriptures and see whether or not the refer- the reformers were, were basically right. However, if you're just going to say, well, they were wrong because they were white men, and other people are right because they're not white men, well, that's a whole different issue. Because now you're saying essentially that people have this privileged access to truth, and we can't just line both authors up with an open Bible and say, well, who's right? We have to sort of give, assume that white European authors missed something. Mm-hmm. And there I'd say that's, again, that's, that's dangerous because I want to be a Berean here. And I understand that I'm not totally objective. I'm not totally rational, but I want to not stack the deck against say the five solas and say, well, it's gotta be wrong because it's from Europe. Right. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm half Indian here. I, I don't have a skin in the game. <laughs> right. You know, but I, I, I want us to not just have these slogans like decenter European theology and ask, well, can I say that and still be part of like the OPC? Right. Can I say that and still be part of the PCA? Because these are, so I'm, I'm not, but I'm just saying, if you're going to, on the one hand, say we have to decenter whiteness, on the other hand, can you then go ahead and say, I believe the Westminster Confession is an accurate account of scripture? Mm-hmm. How can you do both? You can't, it's like you can't do both. You either have this quote unquote, and again, the solution's easy. There is no white theology or black theology or male the- theology or female theology. There's mm-hmm. true theology and there's false theology. Right. In the same way, is it, you know, we don't have a white mathematics and a black mathematics and Asian <laughs> mathematics or, or a male mathematics and a female mathematics. You have mathematics. You have false mathematical yeah. claims. And you have true mathematical claims. So the fact, the very fact that we're dividing up theology in terms of demographic group that's we don't do that with math or science right so wait a minute so why now is theological truth not true in the same way that math and science and history are true because that's you're in some dangerous territory there yeah yeah yeah. and then where do we even know how when to stop because you know all of the things that we previously thought to be absolutes come into question and now have to be qualified based on well, who who discovered that law of physics, you know, and, and it's, it's you get into craziness. Are you a female entrepreneur with a small or budding business? Would you describe your online presence as eh, lackluster at best? Well, girl, you're in luck because you're who I work with and making people shine online is what I do. 
This podcast is my passion, but in my day-to-day work, I am actually a web and graphic designer. I specialize in working with small businesses run by female entrepreneurs. Why? Because I am one of you. So I just get you. I get how you want to show up online as stellar and amazing as you do in person already. You want a system for growing your email list, converting traffic into customers, and most of all, you just want someone you can trust to execute all of that without a million redos or false starts. I know how hard it is to trust someone with your brand that feels kind of like one of your own children, but if you want to chat about your business's website or digital presence, I'm your girl. Let's set a time to chat for 15 minutes on the phone. Go ahead and email me at Haley at kindledpodcast.com or you can book a call with me at hwilliamscreative.com. The radical post, the radical postmoderns will say that. They'll say, yeah, there's no absolute truth at all. The critical right. theorists won't say that standpoint theory wouldn't necessarily say, well, there's no absolute, there's no objective truth. What they would say though is that you can you can't access certain truths because right. of your you're blinded by your privilege. But I, right. I would argue that's very similar, isn't it? I mean, so to say to a person there is no objective truth, and to say, well, there is, but you can't see it. <laughs> that's yeah. In practice, that's very similar. And so I again, I don't want to say, well, whatever Calvin you know, these white European men said is true. No, 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 no. I'm saying I want to make scripture the ultimate authority. Yeah. And sure, we have to work to the hard work of saying, well, I am influenced by my American 21st century, upper middle class, whatever, it's fine. So I want to work to really read, let scripture challenge me, read it fairly and accurately. But what I don't want to do is just assume that, say, the reformers couldn't have been right or assume that they're blind by their privilege. Maybe scripture, and this is actually the doctrine of the perspicuity of scripture. Do we really believe that scripture can be that the, the important truths, the, the salvific truth of scripture can be known to anyone, regardless of whether they're male or female, black, white, Hispanic, Asian. Mm-hmm. And, and man, do you really want to suggest that no, some people need help to understand right. scripture? Well, and that, that goes right against the, the Bible. That goes against the Bible that says for you are without excuse. Right. I mean, yeah, that's, it, that's like directly contrary. Or, or the very idea that the man of God is fully equipped, right, by scripture to understand all that's needed for life of godliness. This is, mm-hmm. this is like central to the Reformation here. Mm-hmm. And we're beginning to chip away at it by saying things like, well, you know, as a man, I can't possibly understand scripture in the way that a woman does. And, and the funny thing, too, is that, well, because then you could say, well, now, wait a minute here. All you're saying is I, I need to find like a, a female exegete and then, then she has the truth. Well, then they'll say, well, no, 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 not exactly. Because if I just go grab some woman who shares my reformed theology, they'll say, well, that's not, that doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> so then, because why? Well, because they're not speaking from a female perspective. They, this is actually the, the phrase internalized oppression you mentioned before. Mm-hmm. So if a critical theorist says, makes some claim and a dominant, the member of a dominant group objects to it. So let's say a, a, a critical theorist says all men are sexist and I'm, I'm a man. So I say, no, that's not true. They'll say, oh, well, well, of course you would say that. You deny that because you're a man. That's your privilege talking. Right. But what if I grab my wife and my wife says, well, no, I don't believe that all men are sexist. I'm a woman. Well, they said, then they'll say, well, you have internalized oppression. Yeah. You have been so immersed in the patriarchal worldview that you believe this lie. And so then they can discount anyone. They can, mm-hmm. they can discount a man. They can discount a woman. So the same way, 
they don't really even believe that you either they actually they don't, they don't believe that you automatically gain insight into oppression from your social location. They'll say that only some people achieve what's called a liberatory consciousness that enables them to see through the, the lie, the ideology, whereas other people are still, you know, immersed in this false ideology. They have a false consciousness. Yeah. That's another Kafka trap, right? Because you can't ever argue against it without proving it. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. So, yeah, right. so if you say, no, that's not true as a man. Oh, so you proved it's true because of course you'd say that. But if yeah. you were saying it against as a woman, oh, see, so it shows how deep and insidious this idea is. Yes. <laughs> and and, and it's really gotten to you. Yeah. It's like, it's like the diagnosis becomes more clear. Oh, I see. Oh, yes. Yeah. You are very deep now. It's something that I want to say in regards to what you were talking about earlier about how we are making some of these things that, that they do have some truth, like, like your example of, you know, the white privilege. Um, yeah, there's, there's some truth to that, that, you know, if you did have this certain experience that you, you makes, you know, you, you don't have the full understanding of what somebody else experienced in an, another culture, another part of the world. But what I think you were saying was when we make secondary things, these, these secondary things, primary things, that's how idols are made. And that's Paul David Tripp talks about that. We are little idol factories. And so anytime we take a secondary truth and make it a primary truth, we elevate it to the level of now that is actually the most true thing there is, we've created an idol. Because it was true in the context of being subordinate to God's truth, right? Like it was true that, sure, me being raised in the suburbs I have a different experience than someone who's raised in the urban environment or in the countryside, like you said. But the second that we make that the most important thing about me, we've created an idol, you know, yeah. in in, yeah. in the sense of like what defines me, who I am, my identity. And that's where we're getting into so much division in our own body of believers within the church because mm-hmm. we're no longer Christians first. We are defined by all of these other things. Yeah. So, I mean... That's kind of the next question I have for you is because we we are seeing this crop up in churches, you mentioned, you know, in your own circles, that's that's what got you sort of looking into it in the first place. How would someone recognize this in their church? What does it look or sound like? Or maybe, you know, we don't even have to say it's only their church. Maybe it's a conversation or mm-hmm. um, a group or a community they're a member of. What does it sound like when it comes out? And what, what, what might that look like as it's being played out in maybe the mission or the ministry or even a message from the pulpit? So, yeah, the, what I would say is that one thing I would not do is as soon as someone like, utters the words social justice or someone, someone utters the words oppression, right? You're like, oh, my gosh, that's critical theory. Ah, you know, run to the hills. Be very hesitant to assume the worst of anyone, especially a believer, you know, just because they say social, they say oppression does not mean that they are spouting critical theory. And obviously mm-hmm. oppression is a word in the Bible, for goodness sake. So you have to say, it's in Isaiah 53, right? Read it. So you, you, you can't just assume that because they use these phrases, they are espousing critical theory. And even there are plenty of people who even use phrases like white privilege or white fragility who don't really understand the import of those phrases. For example, I used to use the phrase white privilege. I don't anymore because I could, I could define it in a way that was, I think, precise. It was backed by empirical evidence, but it didn't actually, it actually was different than Peggy McIntosh defined it. She, she coined the, or she popularized the phrase. 
So when I was using that term, I was like, wait a minute, it's going to confuse people. In the same way, when you use the term whiteness to refer to white supremacy and not to refer to white skin, that's confusing. So I stopped using that phrase to avoid any confusion. That said, some people will use these phrases actually, you know, without really grasping what they, what, they, what they mean to most people in the culture or the critical theorists themselves. So when you hear those phrases, don't automatically assume the worst. Mm-hmm. What I would say is, and then, yes, yeah, so there's more advice I should I have to give later to about how we should then respond. Okay. To recognize critical theory, what I would say is the fundamental red flag is asymmetry. You see that running out throughout critical theory. So this asymmetry between oppressor groups and oppressed groups is asymmetry in, um, in moral status, and asymmetry, obviously, in, in, you know, in, in epistemology, how they know the truth, and then working to destroy structures of, that produces asymmetry. But that asymmetry between, so that the groups are not treated equally, that is a red flag. Now, again, we should be careful here. Obviously, treating groups differently is not critical theory. Like treating men and women differently is not critical theory. Treating, being very sensitive to, say, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, marginalized groups. You know, if a, if a you know, a black friends of mine have experienced lots of racism, personal terrible racism, right? I should be more sensitive to them than I am to a you know, white person who probably hasn't experienced it, right? So mm-hmm. that's not critical theory. That's just charity, right? It's a, you know, people that that require gentleness and respect and kindness, you should give gentleness and respect and kindness too, right? That's not critical theory. But what I'm saying is things like when you are treating uh, sort of a whole class of people, like all men as oppressors and arguing that they should, you know, they have to repent of their toxic masculinity. That That's, again, an and you're not arguing the same for women, obviously. Well, that has this, this collectivist view where I am, I am viewed in terms of my social group that is critical theory because it, 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 because critical theory simply analyzes people in terms of social groups. It's a level at which the analysis occurs. They don't think about things in terms of individuals. So that would be one thing. Another thing would be, again, um, do they know the truth? So uh, saying that, oh, well, you know, we need a women to help us understand certain truths of scripture. That, that can't be right. And again, I, I would hope that most women I mean, you, and you would never dream of saying we need we need men to help us understand certain truths of scripture, right? right? You'd never say that. So whenever you see this, when you say some phrase that would never be flipped around and turned around, that would be horrific if you turned it around, that's not a good sign. Mm-hmm. Usually, you know, if something, but this way, in the Bible, sin does not depend on social location. What is intrinsically sinful for the rich is intrinsically sinful for the poor. What is intrinsically sinful for men is intrinsically sinful for women. Now, we do have roles that we play. You know, as a parent, I can discipline my children. My child can discipline my parents. Men that play certain roles that women don't play. I understand that. But to say things like, you know, it's impossible for, a classic example is, you know, whites cannot, or people of color cannot be racist by definition. Whites can be racist because racist is prejudice plus power. Right. But by definition, people of color cannot be racist. Now, I would say what well, definition is wrong. Why? Because yeah. racism is a sin, and sin has to do with your heart, not your power. Right? I can be prejudiced against someone sinfully, whether I have lots of power or no power. So I think those are warning signs. Again, I don't think people usually have thought that through. When they talk yeah. about racism as prejudice plus power, 
they don't necessarily see that as in conflict with a biblical understanding of racism as sin primarily. Mm-hmm. But they might just adopt that language. But when you push on the definition, you're like, wait a minute, isn't doesn't Bible doesn't the Bible look on the heart primarily, primarily, and not about how much power your group has? I mean, and more than that, wouldn't a you know a very rich Hispanic person have a lot of power relative to a very, very poor white person. Mm-hmm. So then how could they not be racist? Well, is it they're treating terms in terms of their group, not in terms of your individual. So there's a lot there that that would raise red flags for me. Okay. Uh, and I'm not saying most of the time, I think Christians who would start using that language, they're not, I don't think they're probably buying into the entire worldview. Okay? Right. But I would start just gently asking questions like, well, wait a minute, if racism and sexism are sins, Mm-hmm. then shouldn't they apply equally to both groups or relative who has more power? Or, or when you say things like we need to get rid of a white theology, shouldn't you wouldn't say we need to get rid of white mathematics. Why is that? Is it because mm-hmm. isn't theology either true or false like mathematics? Oh, that's a good point. So just raise those questions. Don't, don't, don't come down on people and hammer on them, and, you know, but gently ask those kind of questions because oftentimes I think they haven't really thought that through. Yeah. Yeah. And you're getting at, you know, another good point is that most people, I don't know if it's fair to say most, a lot of people have not thought it through and some of the programs or ministries or even messages that might be being preached from the pulpits are coming from not a place of ill intent, but a place of desiring to make those people feel welcome, make that minority group feel a part of the church or feel valued or feel whatever. And so it's not inherently wrong, that desire to welcome in and and help everyone to feel like, hey, we're all on the same page here. We're all on the same plane. But I think that definition of asymmetry is really helpful because I think that that line is just almost so fine. We can't actually really define it in this conversation to where, you know, where we could say across the board, if there's a program that is being created in your church to train up or raise up a certain minority group within the church to do X thing that you can't, you can't blanket statement say that's, that's critical theory and it's wrong. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think one, I know Matt Chandler got a lot of, uh, pushback for saying things like, oh, you know, we should try to hire more black pastors, you know, even if they're not quite as qualified. It was like, a, it was like, it was like you rated them a seven out of eight or seven out of eight. But, but I think one way to think about that, I think people got all upset about that. And I said, hey, think about this, guys. Uh, if you had to choose between, if you're choosing between missionaries and one was an indigenous missionary who lived in that country since he was born, and another was a foreign missionary, who do you send into that mission field? The person who was born there or the person who, you know, came in from the outside? And the answer is, well, you send in the native born missionary because they're indigenous. They just, they're just more familiar with the culture. Mm-hmm. They, it just, so in a sense, familiarity with a culture is a qualification for the job. It's not about who's more godly. That's not the yeah. question. The question yeah. is just who's better. So I think Chandler, it's not, if someone says, hey, let's try to get people of color, Hispanics, Asians involved in our church because Frankly, we're a very white church, and we want to show people the fullness of God's kingdom. You know, if you want to have to take issue with that, talk to your pastors. But I'm saying I don't think that's a really a wait, it's not a bad motivation at all. Number one, and number two, if you sort of try to see that from their perspective, if they're simply saying, "Hey, man, we have a huge Hispanic neighborhood next door, and I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> can yeah. we please get a Hispanic, Spanish-speaking pastor?" That's not a wrong. That's gospel minded, right? Sure. So again, right. just have a little bit. I think people can react. This is actually interesting. 
after saying that white fragility as a theory is wrong, I think we all of us are fragile. It, don't get yeah. so worked up over, oh my gosh, you know, this is critical theory. Just take a deep breath and say, hey, mm-hmm. maybe there's something more to this. Maybe we do have a history at our church of actual racism and we're trying to get rid of it and maybe we're stumbling a little bit. So have mm-hmm. some grace. I mean, yeah. I understand. I, I work a lot trying to defeat this worldview. I think it's very serious and very dangerous. But we actually do ourselves a disservice when we are hyper, you know, annoyed and angry and always aggressive and everything's evil and bad. Just take a deep breath and try to try to be charitable and gracious. And, and yeah. I think that will actually win people and say, hey, they're not just going on a rant here. They actually have some valid points. Let's listen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while, like you said, like taking the most charitable interpretation of what someone is saying and let them prove you wrong, because yeah. if they are intent on a different end, I think they will. I don't, you know, they're not going to stop with what you feel would be, you know, an accurate portrayal of us actually spreading the gospel to that Hispanic neighborhood. They will go way further than that. They will count every head in every pew and say, Oh, our, our, uh, our percentages are off. We've got one or two more white males yeah, than we need. Let's change our theology, right? So we can we can attract more. Of us. Yeah, that, 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 that's I, I agree that that's you want you want to pick your battles, right? Don't mm. pick, pick when, you, when something. And it all comes back to scripture, guys. I mean, it, unless you can point to some statement and say that was unbiblical, then take it with a grain of salt. Right? I, I think there's plenty out there, and this is the other point I make. There's so much influence of critical theory in evangelicalism and so many just blatantly false statements being made. You don't have to go for these marginal statements where you're not really sure if it's there. Some places they're like, I mean, there's a, a quote I pulled out from a, a professor, professor at Duke Divinity School who said that for Lent she wanted to do an intersectional examination of God's blackness and femaleness on the cross. The, oh the, the series was called Christ, Our Black Mother. Mm. That's okay. not marginal. You're not asking yourself, huh, is that is that orthodox or not? You know. Right. So, right. so I think when you have that level of heterodoxy, I think you don't have to go for these cases. Well, you know, I think you talked a little bit too much about race in the sermon. God, you know, just <laughs> This is Charity here, guys. Wrong. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. And so, and holding in, holding in, in opposition to that, you know, that charitable interpretation, the reality that there are those who do think that the church is theirs to create and form and make look like the universal church of God. And in fact, the church is God's, you know? And so it's like holding it in intention, the reality yeah. that you, even if your church is predominantly white or is predominantly Asian because you are in an Asian neighborhood and community and you're just not attracting a whole lot of white people, that is not the end of the world and does not indicate yeah. that you are not living out the mandate of, you know, going to, you know, the great commission yeah, yeah, right, to go right. and spread the word. And so, yeah, yeah just holding attention. The, exactly. I, that's that's exactly the thing. I think that a lot of times genuine believers who are gospel centered might have different on different sides of that issue, but they can come together and have some tension there and say, like, well, I think we should do a little bit more outreach to this neighborhood. Well, I don't think we need to. I think that's fine. That, you know, we can come together as brothers in Christ and, and commonly affirm, like, yes, we are committed to the gospel. Mm-hmm. But there are other areas where, like, this is just flatly unbiblical, right? Right. And what I would say, too, this is really important. If you are worried about critical theory in the church. And I am, I think the best thing you can do, one of the best things you can do is be absolutely unapologetically 
absolutely abhorrent towards racism and sexism. Yeah. I think so much of this, it gains a foothold because they feel people feel like Christians don't really care much about racism. They don't think it's a problem. They don't think it's a big deal. They don't, they don't, they're not willing to show any sensitivity or kindness. Well, mm-hmm. I think maybe something like, maybe you're right. I've seen some really nasty stuff out there on Twitter. Where right. I'm like, gosh, you know, if yeah, I, I do worry that in a reaction against critical theory, or maybe not even that, but just for some reason, people are just totally blind to racism. The fact that it still exists in society, the fact that racial disparities are huge, the fact that we are living in the, the with a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. We are. I mean, those things they happened a long not that long ago. I mean, there's a for example, there's a woman in my Bible study. She's a she's a she's a, a doctor actually, but she. Uh, when she was a girl, a little girl, she went to a segregated school. She was bused to a black school. This is a woman in my Bible study. This is not ancient history. Yeah. Not, so the idea that like, oh, come on, grow up, get over it. Yeah. No, dude, this is a wonderful woman. And, and I, when I, I was born, the year that I was born, I grew up in Delaware. The year that I was born was the, the year that they desegregated the schools in Delaware, 1979. Wow. Right? They, they uh, that's not mom, very long ago. No, it's not. And I was buttoned. So there's a whole story about Delaware. But the point is, my mom told me, apparently, I didn't know this, but we have a lot of, I have a lot of Jewish friends to this day. Our neighbors were Jewish. And I just, my, my, my close circle of friends, a lot of Jewish people. And I had no idea this, but my mom said there was tremendous anti-Semitism in Wilmington, Delaware. Like huge, like her, one of our neighbors, dads was a builder and wasn't allowed to live in the houses he built. Because wow. he was Jewish. I was, wow. like, I was like, I had, I know there's a huge difference between the world that I grew up in and the world my parents knew about, but we were living in the same house. So my only point is I just want to make it clear that that's an example of that, that our understanding is shaped by our experiences. I had no idea until like a couple of years ago when she told me that that kind of, and I sometimes it existed in our community, mm-hmm. but it did. So yeah. all I'm saying is, I think for whites in the church, it's not, I would go read up on some civil rights movement history, read about slavery, uh, appreciate what blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, uh, Asians do suffer and then be gentle, be kind, be loving. You don't have, it's not, that is not a concession to critical theory. That's, that's biblical, right? right. Love each other, make each other think better, the best of each other. So if you want to have credibility when you speak against critical theory, be the loudest voice in favor of your brothers and sisters in Christ who are black, Hispanic, minority, etc. Mm-hmm. Be their advocates. And then you'll have credibility to say, and yet I don't think this is the way. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really helpful advice as far as just engaging that issue with grace and seeing the heart of those who may have been swept up a bit in that movement and that ideology. And like you said, that worldview, but not completely succumbing to kind of the battle cry and saying, here's how we're going to fight, you know, but, but rather offering an alternative solution, which gets me to my kind of last question for you is, can we oppose both the injustices that critical theory seeks to fight such as, that systemic injustice, racism, et cetera. Can we oppose all of those things that we would say are a result of sin in the world Mm -hmm. and also oppose critical theory and say, actually, 
let's we're going to throw all of it out the window. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Can we do both? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the hardest part, though, so I'm not going to offer a solution. I, I will offer one recommendation. So George Yancey, Professor George Yancey, evang- black evangelical sociologist, I think he's at um, Baylor now, but he wrote a book called Beyond Racial Gridlock, which is a really good job of developing a biblical model for racial reconciliation that is that rejects critical theory explicitly hmm. while using the same sort of idea. So he talks about systemic issues and injustice, and yet he re- totally, very clearly rejects the, what he calls the the white. He calls it the white responsibility model. But he, in a talk he gave, he called it the the white or evil model, or the, mm-hmm. the, the, the that he said that's not that's not going to work. And I can tell you it won't work because it didn't work on me in that, you know, in that auditorium with a yeah. telling me it, the, all the responsibility was on me, you know, and like, yeah, I, I know I have sin in my heart too. And that very much is the critical theory model that would put it all on the dominant group is the, you know, their right. job to undo white supremacy, uh, et cetera. But, right. but George Yancey, a friend of mine, he, that book is very good and, and he understands the problems of critical theory. He tries to navigate a biblical way around these issues. The biggest thing, though, and this is where I think the rubber really hits the road, is that when you talk about systemic injustice, can we fix that without subscribing to critical theory? The problem is that critical theory will define systemic injustice in a way that can only be addressed through critical theory, right? <laughs> right. So they'll define, they'll, for example, it's very common for them to see any disparities at all as the result of discrimination or injustice. And until you just question that very premise, how can you address injustices if you don't think they're injustices? For a good example, uh, the gender wage gap is a big one. You know, women make on average less per year than men. It's about 79 cents to the dollar, right? However, if you factor in things like job choice, number of hours worked, mm-hmm. et cetera, the difference almost vanishes. It goes like 97 cents in the dollar. I don't know what it is, but it's big. It reduces it tremendously. Yeah. So the problem here is that if you ask, can we solve, say, the, je- the injustice of the gender wage gap, the question is, is it an injustice? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so we have to, I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. By the way, I'm not saying, therefore, well, there is no injustice in terms sure. of gender or race. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that to even ask these questions we have to get to the space where we can have those discussions based on reason, evidence, you know, charity, good arguments. And as long as you're subscribing to this view that says oppressor groups are blind to reality and you can ignore everything they have to say, we can't have those conversations. So and George's book is great. This is where Dr. Yancey's book is so good because he, he, his central theme is we have to engage in what he calls active listening where we listen to other people's arguments, we repeat them back to say that that we've understood them. That has to be part of any conversation about anything, whether it's racism, sexism, classism, money, economics. So that's where I think, I I don't think there's a a way to just solve these problems, but I think the only way you're going to solve those problems is by undermining this assumption that we can't talk unless you capitulate to critical theory. That's basically what critical theorists Mm -hmm. say. Until you agree with our premises and agree that you're blind and agree that we have the solution. Now we can talk. We have right. to say, no, actually we're going to both come to the table as again, for Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ who assume the best of each other's motives and who both want to be held accountable to scripture and to evidence. And now we can talk. Mm-hmm. That's got to be the premise on which all these conversations uh, occur. 
Yeah. That means we're going to have probably very few conversations because that's that's a challenging place to get to. I mean, just, uh, uh, you know, the reality of it is I think, you know, you're a really sound voice in this space, but you know, even until I had heard kind of your perspective on it, I was not approaching the conversation with the kind of grace that I think I would now having kind of been, you know, educated and, and coached in, in, in a sense by, you know, some of your admonishments to, you know, take a charitable approach and such and to, and ask that bigger question too. Like you said, kind of going all the way back to, if you find yourself at an impasse, like going all the way back to the fundamental question, like, is this injustice? Like, is, you know, is that wage gap, is that actually something we need to fix, you know, or Mm -hmm. is it rather the result of choices that, and values that people are making that they're perfectly happy with and are making because they want to make them? Yeah. Would you have any kind of tips as far as, you know, when people are engaging in, in conversation, um, things to avoid saying or things to say, anything practical like that? <sighs> I mean, yeah, there are a lot of trigger words in a sense. So that words that have come to, they signal that you are, how do I put this gently, like you're not woke. Yep. Like, so, so calling something divisive, even if it is divisive, but you say it's divisive, then people are like, ah, oh, here's one of those anti-social justice warriors, weirdly. So even though, again, divisiveness is a biblical concept and a biblical word, but that's one other one in, in saying that we shall be colorblind. Again, mm. now, that's been, that word's been redefined. So, you, so when we say, when most people say colorblind, they mean we shouldn't treat people badly because of their race. But I think, yeah, it's a good thing, but color of blindness has been redefined to be a component of racism. This is actually Bonilla Silva's work on colorblind racism. So the, the, the certain words, you just have to get the lingo a little bit. And so you can avoid some of these words that will make people assume that you're saying, well, that you're, if you read enough of the anti-racist literature, if you read enough of the critical theory literature, then you begin to see how these words are being redefined. And then you can avoid, or you can clarify, you can say, when I say we should, we should, do you agree we should treat all people equally well, regardless of their race? They say, oh, yeah. Okay, well, I, I'm calling that colorblind. Oh, no, you can't call it that. So it helps just have familiarity with the literature. So mm-hmm. I would just recommend, um, I know people don't have a lot of time, but pick up some, and there are lots, there are lots to read, though. But if you just pick up some of this literature uh, from critical theory, uh, anti-racist literature, things like Ibram Kendi's um, Step to the Beginning, with some other accessible works. I mean, you can, you can read White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Mm-hmm. You'll get a sense of what they're saying. And it can even help you, again, to not step on a landmine. Yeah. But I, the other thing I just say is, is ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. Ask a lot of questions. It's so disarming. If, if, if you're asking questions, they can't accuse you of saying false things because you're asking questions. You're not asking anything. That can really help disarm people and get the conversation moving. So I would, if there's one piece of advice, ask lots of questions. Yeah, that's a great point. Is there any question that can help get to the bottom? Like, for instance, you know, why do you believe that? Or what makes you say that? Is there, is there a question that you find yourself asking over and over that helps you to kind of uncover the root of why someone might make, you know, a declarative statement that, is like blatantly critical theory. Yeah. I, I mean, you can say, I think if you've ever read Greg Kokel's tactics, it's a great book on apologetics, but he has like, those three, three Columbo questions, he calls them. But one of them is, you know, why do you, what do you mean by that? And why do you believe that? Uh, there's two of them. So 
that often mm-hmm. will help. And then the other thing you can, like in the frame is a question, but if someone says something that's just blatantly false, because some things that critical theory says are, are true, but this is something that's it's clearly false, just ask, rather than saying, well, the Bible says this, say, well, what do you make of this passage? How would you, how would you read this passage, say Galatians 3, 26 through 28? How, how would you read that? And, and, and so it's, but it is a little bit of a skill. You have to anticipate where the conversation is going to go. You have to know, yeah. if you understand critical theory, you'll know why they're making those arguments. So why would someone say that, that colorblindness is, is racism? Why would they say that? If you understand critical theory, you'll know why they'll say that. And then you can sort of ask the right questions to say, oh, you're assuming that racism is not, uh, is not primarily a sin, for example, that it's a power structure and that it depends on privilege plus institutional power. And, and you're assuming that uh, anti-racism means ignoring people's culture and race when actually it doesn't mean those things. But if, and if you understand critical theory, it can help you to ask the right questions. So, so yeah. Unfortunately, I wish I could tell you, so my friend Pat and I are writing a book right now on critical theory, which will hopefully awesome. answer some of these questions. Because uh, they're right now, people ask me, what should I read? What, what explains critical theory from a yeah. Christian perspective? And the answer is, I don't know of anything. I can give you recommendations of books written by critical theorists that I think are helpful. Right. But I don't know of a book currently that, and we're talking about contemporary critical theory, not the Frankfurt School. But I don't know a book that's doing that about modern critical theory and an evangelical Christian worldview. Uh, so yeah, that answer is just yeah. You can go to my website and look. I have about twenty re- book reviews of a variety of books uh, on critical theory about critical theory, and you can just sort of flip through all that stuff and try to find yeah. more information. But yeah, I'm sorry. I wish I could give you. A- no, no. I think that's really helpful. And I know, I mean, I have friends who have read your book reviews and, and found them really helpful as well. So it, it, I just want to kind of offer maybe one final kind of wrap up statement that I, whenever I get confused about this stuff and you can kind of confirm whether I'm thinking about this rightly, whenever I get confused about Okay, what is it here? What? Why is this problematic again? Like, what is the core argument mm-hmm. I would give to, let's say, a pastor or a friend, or if if I needed to have you know something in my back pocket, what is the core argument that that I need to to return to to remind myself of why this is a problem? I remember within it, critical critical theory says that the greatest evil is oppression, and the greatest good is liberation. Mm-hmm. And then versus a biblical worldview that says our greatest evil is sin mm-hmm. and the greatest good is redemption and salvation right. through Jesus Christ. Would is that an accurate comparison? Yeah, no, you you could so I mean I'm I know I'm super simplifying it. Yeah, no, but it's fair. What, what they might say is, well, critical theory just they don't they don't treat other issues of virtue, but I would say, yeah, that I think it's undeniable that critical theory in all its forms, it is concerned with liberation, freedom and liberation as the good for humanity mm-hmm. and, and defined against, uh, you know, oppression by ideology. That's, that's just a theme throughout critical theory. And yeah, mm-hmm. I would say that is a major problem because when you think about, like I said, how they define ideology and hegemony and, and those things are not the way Christians think about them. Right. And we don't understand having values imposed on you as oppression if they're god's mm-hmm. values right and and we don't think that our problem is oh if we we're only free our cry is you know 
who will deliver me from this body of death, the death of sin? That's the cry we have. Yeah. Not how can I be free? Yeah. So it's a misunderstanding and, and a, a departure from the, the Bible's answer to what is actually, I mean, you could even put it this way, like what is oppressing man? you know oppression itself or sin or sin like so the the only thing i don't so i i you can recast the gospel in terms of like liberation like you know jesus is the ultimate liberator who came to say Mm -hmm. but then i actually just my only concern there is because you can say that you can say according to the bible we're oppressed by sin and jesus liberates us from the power and the dominion of sin that's totally biblical but it's confusing so if you say to some random secular person jesus wants to liberate you they're not thinking from the death, the world, the flesh, and the devil. <laughs> they're right. thinking from political oppression, the patriarchy, and, yeah, the patriarchy, and they're thinking about you know maybe from capitalism. So yeah. I just, I, I obviously think that you can biblically talk about Jesus as liberator. You can biblically talk about you know the oppression of sin, but in our culture right now, I would hesitate to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I'm not, yeah but I think you're right. Is that right? Is that in critical theory. The focus is on oppression and liberation. That is the the summum bonum is, uh, of, of critical theory is liberation. Whereas we would say that in the, as they understand it, no. For us, it's the storyline of the Bible is you know creation, fall, redemption, glorification. Yeah. So and that's the that's the narrative that we hold to, and not a narrative about oppression and liberation right. according to political structures and power. Yeah. So stick to stick to biblical language, and you will stay true to. Yeah, to the truth and and to the solution. If we if yeah. we if we start with the wrong problem, we will end up with the wrong solution. Yes, good way to put it. Oh, thank you so much, Neil. This has been super helpful. But I I know that this is going to be so helpful. So I really appreciate you taking the time to to chat with me. Sure. Where My can pleasure. people um, learn more about you? Can you remind us your website? Yeah, it's shenviapologetics.com. But if you Google Neil Shenvi, N-E-I-L-S-H-E-N-V-I, just Google Neil Shenvi or any variation on that mm-hmm. phonetic phrase, uh, you'll find my website. I'm, there only, there's okay. like one Neil Shenvi in the world right now. So okay, it's me. Perfect. It's a common name. That's to our advantage. So that's yep. great. Thank you so much, Neil. Thank you, Haley. Thank you guys so much for listening today. I hope that conversation was informative and helpful. Remember that I link everything that we chat about in each episode in the show notes at kindledpodcast.com. You can just click on podcast at the top of the website and then go find today's episode. And I will link you to any resources that are mentioned in the episode. Next week, I'm going to be chatting with my friend Jennifer Edward all about imperfect purpose. And this episode's a tearjerker and I cry. So there's that. But definitely come back next week for that conversation with Jennifer. It's just, it's a really good one. And then lastly, I just want to remind you to leave a rating and review for Kindled on Apple Podcasts. And I thought it might be fun to share some of the most recent reviews that we have received. By we, I mean I. This one is from League 89. She says, I love how Haley digs deep into understanding and acknowledging worldview and how culture is infiltrating our church body. It's refreshing to hear her boldness and desire to kindle the fire within us as believers. Jeremiah 29. Thank you so much for those kind words. You guys, I actually do read every single rating and review that I receive, and I'm not asking you to do this for my ego. But Apple does show people recommended podcasts. You know how when you're listening to a show and then it's over and it'll show you other podcasts that you may like. They do that based on all kinds of 
crazy algorithm things. But I know one of the things that is playing into that algorithm is reviews. So when you leave a review, you really help other moms find Kindle. So thank you guys so much for listening and come find me on Instagram at hayleywilliams.kindled and have a great week.